Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. All right, this week's episode is in honor of my friend Johnny Saba. He was having an interesting discussion with me about the different kinds of claims that you hear about the percentage of renewable energy that X country uses. And I was actually getting annoyed because I was just thinking it's so obvious how all of these claims are BS, but he pointed out to me, well, it's, it's not obvious. And unless you've seen enough examples of how people manipulate uh, the data, it can be hard to get a handle on. So I said, all right, I'll get my man, Stefan, head of research at CIP, Stefan Hen, that is. And we will break down some of this data so that once and for all, or at least uh, now and for some, we will sort of see what's going on when you hear these claims about Spain and Denmark and Germany and Iceland and China, you know, all, all these different alleged triumphs of solar and wind over fossil fuels and nuclear and hydro. All right, so that will be our topic today, and it should be interesting. Uh, Stefan knows so much about this, knows way more than I do about a lot of the details. Uh, it's fun to have someone around the company who knows those details, and you should have fun listening. So enjoy Power Hour on the subject of fake renewable energy statistics with Stefan on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Stefan Hen, head of research at the Center for Industrial Progress. Stefan, welcome back to Power Hour. Hi, Alex. Good to be here. Have you ever done a power hour or just power surge? Mm, I think we did a power after the McKim debate. Oh, that's right. Oh, we did two. We did right. two. So you're third time guest. So you almost, almost have the record uh, behind me and a couple yeah. of other people. All right. So today we're going to talk about these claims that Country X gets Y percent of its electricity from renewable sources, particularly solar and wind. Before we dive into that, why is this an important issue? Why is it important for people to know that these claims are, are not true or are very, very misleading? Well, I, I think the claims are designed in a way to, to tell the general public that renewable energy, particularly wind and solar, are a viable replacement for other energy sources, primarily fossil fuels, and that it's easy to go off, especially fossil fuels, but also nuclear and large-scale hydro, um, by switching to these power sources. And that's very misleading. Right. So often in life, if somebody says... X is possible, you say, okay, we'll prove it. And they'll say, well, look, this other person did it. 
and it worked out really well. Whereas if, if you've been advocating it for decades and it's, it's never worked out well at all, that's a completely different story. And that, that's the story of reality. Uh, but there are all these claims that you hear, and even people who have read Moral Case for Fossil Fuels and are familiar with some of the basic problems of the unreliables, which is the proper name for what uh, people refer to as renewables, they just see them so often it can be it can just seem like, well, there, there must be something there, or at least it's important to know what's the nature of the distortion. Because whenever I see these claims, I know that one of a, a few things is happening. So let's we're going to review some of the major alleged success stories from Germany to Denmark to Spain to China, and we'll see what's going on in all of these. So let's look at this. Uh, here are a couple of quotes about Germany. And this is an example in the moral case for fossil fuels, and it's in several of my articles, so you can read about it. But still, I want to go through some of these these current claims that you make, so that the people make rather, not not Stefan, even though he is from Germany. So one is so from Think Progress. This is the Center for American Progress, not Industrial Progress, and they don't actually advocate things that would lead to American progress. Uh, so the Center for the Reversal of American Progress writes. Germany just got 78% of its electricity from renewable sources. Notice the word just. Uh, but also we have Germany now produces half of its energy using solar. And this is from perhaps the most popular scientific quote-unquote site on the internet, which is I fucking love science. So that, that authoritative uh, page tells us Germany now produces half of its energy using solar. So, well, first of all, let, let's go to the reality. What are the actual statistics about how much of Germany's energy has been produced using solar? Well, if you look at total energy, that includes electricity and also transport fuel for Germany, solar only produced 2.5% of that. All right, so we have 2.5% versus 50%. So what, what's, the, what's the discrepancy? Well, usually when you see these claims of extremely high um, energy production or electricity production numbers, uh, they usually refer to one particular moment, sometimes a day, sometimes an hour or less, of uh, total energy consumption or electricity production, and that's... Uh, yeah, that's the misleading part. If you if you know something about solar, you know that it's intermittent and sometimes it produces a lot. It has uh, a lot of sunshines in a in a July noon hour and very little sunshines, you know, during nighttime or during winter hours. And um, then the average is pretty low, but you can have this spike in production, you know, on a preferential day. Okay, so th there's that, and that's important, but that, that can't explain this, this full discrepancy. So you mentioned, I think, just a little too casually, the distinction between electricity and energy. Often what, what I see, though, is that people equate electricity and energy. So that you'll, you'll see some, they'll mention electricity, they'll mention energy, and they treat them as the same thing. So what's, what's the difference, in, and what's the difference in magnitude? Um, yeah, if you see, if you look at Germany, um, the installed capacity in electric production is 
um, about 185 gigawatts in 2014. And um, the total consumption of energy, which includes also, as I already mentioned, um, transport fuels, primarily oil, uh, that's that's a lot more. And that's measured in a million tons of oil equivalent, and that's 311 million tons of oil equivalent, which is about at least double the electricity capacity. And so what's the other energy used for? Um, yeah, that's usually the fuels in cars and trucks and machinery and uh, everything, every, every machine that doesn't run on electricity, essentially. So that's usually transport fuel and ships and airplanes, this kind of thing. What about, what about heating and, and industrial uses? It depends on the country. Sometimes heating is um, co-produced in, in a combined power plant where there's electricity and heat being produced as natural gas is very important. Some countries like France actually rely on electricity for heating a lot. Well, yeah, they have nuclear. Yeah. All right. So we have basically energy. You know, energy is something we need to do a whole variety of things. Uh, electricity is an unbelievably important form of energy, but it's not the only uh, form of energy, uh, particularly for, for transportation. It, it often makes... Uh, the vast majority of the time, it makes sense to use some sort of liquid fuel, almost always fossil fuel-based, uh, than you know to try to use some uh, battery uh, setup that's charged with electricity from some uh, other source. So now, even though even once we get so there's this one fallacy of electricity equals energy, but then there's the other fallacy of capacity equals output. So there are these statistics that we see that are, well, Germany has X amount of capacity. So Germans, Germany's uh, electrical capacity is 21.4% uh, for solar and 23.6% for wind. But in terms of the actual, uh, in terms of the actual output, what's actually generated it's 5.9% for solar and 13.3% uh, for wind. So what's, what's going on there? Yeah, so capacity is essentially um, what would a power source produce if it were at um, maximum production all the time. And that's usually a good measurement of how efficient a power plant is. For example, if you have a coal power plant and it runs at 80% of its um, total capacity on average, that's a very good, good uh, efficiency level. And what you have with solar and wind power, because they're intermittent and you can't control when they produce, uh, you usually have a very low, um, what's called a capacity factor, that is the uh, percentage of power produced compared to what it could produce if it would produce at 100% maximum all, all of the time year-round. And that is usually very low with wind and even lower for solar because um, solar naturally only produces like half of the day. And even then, um, clouds and precipitation and, uh, you know, in the winter month, the, the sun doesn't stand as high in the sky as in the summer month in Germany. And that's uh, a drag on the efficiency of that. So this this you have to overbuild the capacity of solar and wind 
multiple times to reach actually an average production that's equal to something like a coal or nuclear power plant. Is the term capacity really very useful? It just seems like it's inevitably going to be used to distort the situation. Because I mean, what I would think of as capacity would be controllable capacity or reliable capacity. Maybe there's a range there. But what I want to know is how much can I indefinitely, in how much power can I reliably and indefinitely produce with this kind of thing? And the answer for solar or wind is, is zero. So even even with even if if we say, well, it's got this much capacity, but then sometimes they'll talk about capacity factor. They'll talk about, well, the, the percentage of that is only one third. That doesn't capture it at all in terms of what the grid actually needs. That's just saying, well, it'll spray this much energy, you know, on average. But in terms of reliability, in terms of what one crucial aspect of the electricity, it's it's not producing it. So how, how should we think of its capacity? Well, I think historically it made some sense to compare capacities because you would usually, you know, compare like the German and the British and the French total capacity in electricity pro uh, um, production. And then you would have an idea of how powerful in the, in the in industry of that country would be. But um, that, of course, breaks completely down with something like solar and wind that intermittently and randomly produce and uh, it's also a bit biased because if you compare, let's say, a nuclear power plant with a coal power plant, what usually happens is that the nuclear power plant has a very high level of efficiency, but that's not because nuclear is inherently better than coal in running at high capacity, but because the asset of the nuclear light water reactor is so expensive that it doesn't make sense to let it run idle. So the economic calculation leads to, okay, let's let's run the light water reactor, the nuclear reactor, at you know, 80-90% capacity factor, and the coal power plant is more flexible because we don't lose as much money if we run it at 50% some of the time. So even, even with controllable energy sources, the capacity alone doesn't tell you a lot. It's dependent on local factors and economic incentives and yeah and solar and wind obviously you know they are called non-dispatchable sources by you know government entities um and what that means is they randomly produce some of the time and and you can control when so the capacity doesn't tell you much yeah I, i'm going to think about this some more but my current thinking as as we're having this conversation is that <clears throat> It's just simply a misuse of the term uh, capacity to say that you have this much solar. I mean, why? What? how does it make any sense to say this is, if you're guaranteed to not get it the vast, vast majority of the time, or, or to get any reliable percentage of it, it's it's just a completely different animal. It's, it's, it's really just stealing an idea from one context and and putting it in another where the in one context it's it's kind of like horsepower or torque or something like that where you, you have okay this is something there's this definite capacity to do something and then you can exercise x amount of it at a given time on demand but 
it's, it's not actually something that you can, you can exercise. And even the idea of capacity is how much of it, there's some sense of how much of it can you choose uh, to use. I think the idea of, of choice is built into the common understanding of it. So I just, I, I alternatively just stop, just stop saying it doesn't have that uh, capacity. It has, it has this range of unreliability. Yeah, it doesn't actually reflect an, a true potential in, the, in wind and solar. So wind and solar capacity doesn't tell you, hey, if we would really need it, we could ramp this up to this level of production. That's not true for non-controllable energy sources like solar and wind. And even, even with, with these intermittent sources that you can control, the, the problem is if you build a lot of capacity, then you increase the spread between maximum production, like a, a peak during like a 10-minute interval, and uh, the trough production, which is, you know, at some, during some days of the year, Germany will produce almost no solar or no wind. And that spread increases the more capacity. So capacity is actually something, quote unquote, bad to have with these energy sources in some contexts. Can you elaborate on that? I'm not sure people will get it just, just from that. Um, so let's say on a, on a windy July afternoon, there's a lot of solar and wind production. So for like half an hour peak, you get a, a huge amount of energy from both. And, and that's reflected in these headlines, like 50% is produced by solar. Um, so that's the high point. That's you know, very close to maximum possible production by random. Okay, you didn't control that, you didn't want that. Some other power plant has to you know, decrease its output to adapt to this input by solar and wind. And then comes like an August or winter month, and there's maybe a little snow, so the solar panels are covered by snow. And, Wait, in uh, August month, you said? In autumn or... Oh, or autumn, winter, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's even, like, because of the local weather over Central Europe, you don't get a lot of wind energy. And then you're very close to 0% production of this capacity. And so you, you have a huge spread between this maximum usage of solar and wind at random in a, on a July day, and this minimum production of almost zero during a winter day. And, and you have to, you cannot just, out of nothing, create some alternative capacity like a coal power plant, so you have to have that in reserve. So you need some, some essentially 100% backup capacity in a conventional power source that you can control to compensate for this high peak and low trough. Production. Okay, and then if you let's let's say you didn't do that, I think there's what's missing maybe in a lot of thinking is is the idea that you can have both too little electricity for your needs and too much. So what happens if if you don't scale those other things down? What happens? Well, if if you would have uh, let's say a purely solar and wind grid and um, they would just at random produce too much or too little and would almost never produce just the right amount uh, to match uh, electric demand in the grid by the consumers, then uh, both would lead to a destruction of the infrastructure. So you, you, you cannot just keep putting in more electricity 
into the grid, you need to get rid of that either by, you know, machines working in, in your home and, you know, getting power from the grid, or you need to, you know, cut off, uh, which sometimes happens, by the way, like um, an offshore wind farm in the North Sea. So that's, that's off the German coast. So if that produces a lot and you don't need a lot of, of energy in that region, you need to get rid of that. And sometimes they have to cut off a producer like solar panels or wind farms. And sometimes uh, you need to compensate with trade. So Germany sometimes puts a lot of wind into the neighboring grids in France or Poland or the Czech Republic. And um, these countries then have to sl slow down the production of their conventional pens. Usually in France, it's, it's nuclear power, which is not as flexible. But in Poland, the Czech Republic is usually coal. So coal is flexible enough to compensate for this random useless peak production in Germany. And then they, the cross-border trade compensates for that. So we don't get blackouts from too much or too little electricity. But then this I is, mean by the way... Sorry, this is, by the way, um, why we see an increase in cross-border trade of electricity as well. Now, with, with solar and wind, with these statistics, uh, is some of the energy generated energy that's not consumed by Germans? Um, yes, so there's, there's sort of a gross electricity production, and then you have some cross-border trade that is in, you know, either plus or minus, depending on how much you export or import. But uh, one thing to understand is also, you get an aggregate number for the entire year, but what needs to happen is, on a second-by-second -second basis, the grid needs to be stable. So production needs to meet consumption. And that means you constantly need a flow of electricity from one region to the other to compensate for random peak productions you know, by some uncontrollable solar or, or wind source. All right, so we've, we've gone through a bunch of different fallacies here. Now, people might think, okay, well, that's Germany, but there are all these other, other examples of the unreliables or uncontrollables working really, really well. So let's go to China. So we have China uh, from the, the website Clean Technica, which is one of the top... Uh, anti-fossil fuel energy sites. So the headline says, China hit record wind and solar year in 2015. So the term record, as soon as you see that, you pretty much know that there's going to be massive BS, whether it's an article about an environmental issue or an energy issue. Because first question in my mind is, you know, what, what, what scale of record? Is it just a record on its own terms? Like, is it, you know, Alex Epstein set free throw record in 2015. So it's how many I I made, or I made more than Steph Curry. Those are those are very different kinds of things. So with China, what is ac actually in terms of their you know this this high flying economy or at least was on on solar and wind. What percentage of their total energy? We'll want to start with energy. Is, is solar and what percentage is, is wind? And, and listeners, before you hear this, think in your mind when you hear these kinds of statements about, well, China's kicking our butt in solar and wind and they're building all these solar panels and they're, they're just, you know, they're just doing so well. What percentage you would think, uh, would you think it was? And then 
Okay, Stefan, what percentage is it of solar and wind? Well, in 2014, which is uh, the latest year I got uh, data for, uh, solar uh, was responsible for 0.2% of total energy production or consumption, and wind uh, was responsible for 1.2% of total energy consumption. So it's a tiny fraction of the entire Chinese economy. And then what about for uh, electricity? Um, in terms of electricity, solar produced 0.5% in 2014, and wind produced 2.8%. And how does that compare to coal? Um, coal is about 65% in electricity production. Now, if, if we look at these other ones, what, where is the rest of the electricity coming from? I couldn't find good numbers for hydroelectricity, but uh, there's a lot of um, hydroelectric power. The Three Gorges Dam is one example. So that's actually 22.3% uh, of electric generation capacity. And uh, yeah, natural gas and uh, also biomass mass and waste. Um, that these are the main sources. But it's and, a and hydro. Hydro is the, the biggest by far besides coal, right? Yes. And how much of it is that one dam? I mean, that seems like a lot. Oh, I, I don't have that number for that specifically. It's, it must be huge. Like this, is, this has been a huge project. Uh, yeah, I mean, just 300 gigawatts of, of capacity. Now with hydro, hydro is interesting with capacity because it, it can, it's, it's less controllable than fossil fuels or nuclear, but you know, far more controllable than the unreliables. To what extent can hydro capacity uh, decrease when you have droughts? That depends on the local circumstances. Like there's, there's, I think there's much more danger in something like the Grand Canyon area for that to happen than in some other areas. Um, Hydro is a mixed bag in that, on one hand, if you have a really good um, position for that hydro dam, it can provide constant flow of energy, but it also can provide some storage capacity because this dam holds a lot of water and therefore potential energy that you then can, in a controlled manner, release and turn into electricity. Um, yeah, it, it completely depends on the geographic situation of, of the individual dam. Uh, just a, as a point that all of these things have their own risks, what are, what are the safety risks of hydro? <laughs> I, I think in, in, in some distant decades, like maybe before, maybe even somewhat after World War II, Hydroelectric dams were responsible for some of the biggest catastrophes with thousands of deaths because that um, potential energy in a stored water basin is uh, very dangerous if you have a lot of people living in the surrounding area, obviously. So a dam breach uh, means a major catastrophe if, the, if this dam has a lot of capacity. So they're like... Uh, reports of major catastrophes in the past where you, literally thousands of people died at once from, from this kind of energy. It's just interesting because 
people think of water as natural and therefore safe, but just large quantities of water uh, can be completely terrifying. And I'd much, in terms of fear of safety and worst case scenario, I'd much rather live next to a nuclear power plant or just about anything uh, than a dam. Although I am a, a big fan of hydropower, you just have to to take it very seriously and to not to not have these biases that oh well it if it's water if it's quote natural it must be it must be safe so with china here's what i start to run into when i look at these because uh, a, a friend of mine who's very smart told me well you should do a show on this you should do an article on this and i said all right we can do it but i i find this issue boring and the reason i find it boring is that i know how power generation works and i know why unreliables are unreliable and thus I know that every time I hear one of these incredible claims, it's just a complete lie. Now, that said, it's important that all of you know that it's a lie. But I want you to get to the point, you the audience, to get to the point where it's a boring issue for you too because you know exactly what's going on and you know a lot of these specific examples. So we'll go through a couple more, uh, and, and I think that will... That will drive it at home. All right. So then, you know, Denmark. Denmark is an interesting one because Denmark is is a bit of a different situation than uh, the others. So one one headline is Denmark just generated 140 percent of its electricity demand from wind power, and then Denmark got 42 percent of its electricity from wind last year, smashing the world record. Now, if I look at our data here, uh, well, what's what's going on? So I'll, I'll let you say. So what um, is it? Is it true that forty-two percent of electricity generation uh, in twenty fifteen came from wind? Um, yeah, I, I would say yes. I, I trust the official government data. Um, Denmark is a very special case in that it has been the most radical in terms of percentage of capacity for wind. And it's also a small country surrounded by a lot of countries that trade the, that do the cross-border electricity trade with Denmark. So in, in 2014, it was 39% for wind, and in 2015, it was 42% for wind. And uh, the headline... Um, Denmark generated 140%. How does that work? If, if, if there's really 130% of, uh, of electricity demand in the grid, then the grid would collapse. So how does this work? Uh, Denmark has a point of peak production in wind, and then it puts that wind across the border to Germany, some other can Scandinavian countries that have hydroelectric capacity where they, you know, use pumped storage to absorb that energy. And that is, that is of course, just for a short period of time. But over the year, uh, Denmark actually produces a lot of wind energy. And it compensates with that, uh, not only with its own conventional capacity, but also with, for example, German capacity. So Denmark is a country of less than 6 million people. And this, this uh, overproduction imported into Germany is sort of just a blip in the energy statistics of northern Germany. And so Denmark is able to produce that much 
wind power because it can trade it in with other countries that have a much larger basis of conventional capacity. So if Denmark was isolated, if it was an island, it would collapse under that. So that's that's just always an important point to remember that that these are all dependent sources of energy that that couldn't on their own work. So that they they depend on these other countries. Now, what if someone said, "Well, can't can't Denmark do what if Germany did what Denmark did? Can't Germany just build all of these wind turbines and then it can generate 42% of its electricity from wind?" Well, if if Germany and Denmark were the only ones, maybe even that would work because France and Poland and the Czech Republic and so on, and, and maybe Sweden with a lot of hydro pump storage capacity, they might be able to absorb that. But if every single country surrounding that area would do that and would have sort of a peak production in wind because of the local weather, then that would be a huge problem. So there's no, not remotely enough uh, storage capacity to buffer that. And um, yeah, it, um, there has to be a point where if sufficient capacity is built up all over Europe, then this doesn't work anymore. We, then we need to cut off producers like uh, wind farms or solar arrays. Um, so it, it's not something that you can really scale. It's, a small country can do that more aggressively than a large country. And if too many countries do it with too much capacity, uh, essentially at random production, then it doesn't work because there's nobody left to compensate for that. So in a sense, it's the more of this trade that you have, the less it makes sense to even think of it as an individual country. So you could imagine within the United States, certain cities that have wind turbines, you could say, well, they're getting 50% of their electricity from wind. And but it seems very misleading uh, to do that versus, well, no, the whole country is a self-contained unit without getting anything from Mexico or Canada is getting 42% from wind. That would be a, a completely different thing. And, and on that note, in the case of Denmark, do we really know how much of the electricity that's being produced uh, they're consuming? Because what we certainly wouldn't dispute is that if you put up more windmills and more wind turbines and more solar panels, you will get more electricity generated. And if you do enough of that, you can get more than X percent of your year-round usage. Uh, you, you know, you can you can produce more of that in raw form at some time. But the point is that you can't you can't control it. You can't rely on it. Thus, you have to get somebody else who can control and rely on their energy to adjust so that everything uh, works out. And you have to basically be on life support 100% of the time for when your sources don't, don't produce. So do we know with, with Denmark how much of that electricity it's actually consuming versus just how much it's sort of randomly shooting into the universe? I could not find... Uh any data on the on the consumption level for that, but uh, there's also a problem, as uh, the previous uh, guest Travis Fisher noted. Um, once the electrons are in the in the grid system, you can't really distinguish where they come from. So it's it's difficult to see 
you know, how much of that electricity goes to Germany or to Sweden and how much um, from Germany or Sweden gets into Denmark. So it's, it's really, it's, it's like measuring, you know, shares of liquid in a, in a huge bathtub. It's, it's constantly in flow and, and it's, I think it's difficult to measure. I, I don't even know if these things are ever recorded by the utilities. There's no published data that I could find. Mm. And one more point, just in terms of this idea of aggregate energy, the stats we have are for, for wind in Denmark, it's 17.3%. So still, if, you, if you're talking about actual energy, because you hear the number one place in the world for wind, and I think wind and solar combined, is still 17% of energy. Now, one, one thing before we go to the next one, which is also interesting, Iceland, interesting in different ways. What about the cost of this? We haven't talked about the cost of this, but what's, what's the general cost trend in Denmark? Well, Denmark is, I think, still the most expensive in terms of residential electricity rates, uh, closely followed by Germany. Um, and Iceland will be more interesting in that because it actually has a, has a sort of renewable source that is inexpensive. Um, yeah, but Denmark breaks the record in electricity prices. And, and that's a consistent pattern. You see that everywhere where a significant amount of solar and wind is installed, uh, you see the total cost of the system going up. And that's usually reflected in electricity prices, not necessarily because there's a lot of, you know, government subsidies and transfer of money between, you know, utilities, the government, the taxpayer, the ratepayer. It's, it's usually complex because, you know, politicians get their hands in it. But uh, yeah, so it's usually reflected in the electricity prices for the residential homes. And Denmark is uh, number one in the U uh, European Union. Yeah, the, the, the point about the system is, is very important because just as you'll see these claims about percentages generated by unreliables, so you'll see quotes about costs of unreliables going down. And usually what will happen is that one particular aspect of the process of producing them, like the, the cost of the you know, wafers for solar panels, will be highlighted, but the overall cost of the process is not. And these processes can be complex, but one, one reliable way of getting at them is to see, well, once you add this allegedly great form of energy, what happens to the price of electricity? And as Stefan mentioned, that itself can be very distorted, but even there you see very consistently with these European countries, them paying three, four, even more times more for electricity than we do in the U.S. And we in the U.S., particularly those of us in California and other politically correct states, don't pay, could be paying less for electricity as, as well. So that's important. Now, Iceland is a really interesting case. And this, this goes to the idea that we don't want to, to think of energy as renewable or not, or green or not, certainly green, is not the right way to think of what's desirable. What we want ultimately is superior energy. You know, we want the best form of energy for human beings. Uh, and that includes both potential positives and potential negatives. But it's all about that. So there's no idea that, well, we should inherently use fossil fuels or we shouldn't. It's just a question of, is that the superior form of energy for the job? 
And in Iceland, at least, it appears that it may not be, well, at least for electricity. So what's, what produces the electricity in Iceland? Well, Iceland is sort of the poster child for Greens to claim that renewable energy production at almost 100% is possible. And because hydroelectricity is 71% of electricity generation in Iceland and geothermal makes up almost all of the rest. So there's some tiny amount of wind and an even smaller amount of fossil fuels. Um, but the vast majority of this is hydro capacity. And Iceland, of course, is a very special place. It's an island nation, so it has to produce its own energy and cannot trade with others. And it also has this large hydroelectric capacity compared to the population size, which is just, I think, 330,000 people there. And um, yeah, some geothermal, I think they had some problems with geothermal in that uh, some of the, uh, the wells didn't consistently uh, keep up the production. But yeah, geothermal is at 24.1%, as I said, and hydro at 72 uh, capacity and in terms of electricity generation 71 to 29 and that's close to 100 percent it's a rounding error it's 100%. so what is it about iceland that enables it to do this yeah it, it's it has a very small population essentially just a, by american standards mid-size city and compared to that there's a lot of hydro capacity that is rivers that you can put a dam on and, and you know get your get your electricity from the from the water streams and uh, that's essentially the the key thing it's it's not like if if iceland would have many times over the electricity demand because of a larger population then this might look very different but um hydro in their case is a very cheap source of electricity, they actually have comparable prices to the average United States in terms of residential electricity prices. And uh, yeah, that's very fortunate for them that they have this controllable source of energy that they can tap into and it's sufficient for the population. What about, what about geothermal? Is, is there anything unique about the area that makes it suitable for geothermal? Oh yeah, there's, there's a lot. I mean, Iceland is famous for its geysers, so there's a lot of uh, geological activity and therefore a lot of places where geothermal is viable in the technical sense and I also think in the, in the economic sense. Now, what, what general... So geothermal is interesting because it's more of a reliable and controllable source, certainly, than solar and wind. Why hasn't that taken a hold around the world very much? Uh, there are only few countries. Iceland is one. The United States is another one. I think some Southeast Asian, maybe Indonesia or Malaysia. Um, so they almost make up all of the uh, worldwide capacity. And the reason for that is that even more so than hydro, it depends on the local geological viability. So if you don't have a place where you can tap into the underground heat, uh, then you cannot generate the steam 
that's necessary for geothermal to work. So the, the technology essentially pumps down some liquid into the ground where there's a heat source from from the you know uh, sort of volcanic crack in the ground, and then it uh, generates steam this way, and uh, yeah, that drives a turbine, and, and therefore it's a it's a controllable source because it essentially is a steam engine, but it uses this um, geothermal heat energy, and that only works in specific places around the world. You can't just decide to have a geothermal power plant somewhere and then it works. It's not but when economic. People, when people do that, I think, isn't Musk doing that in part for the Gigafactory? And often when they do it, these often these places with just certain inherent advantages with respect to certain technologies, when somebody uses that, they'll act as if, well, everybody should do this. And this is one of the reasons why to, to focus the show on this topic. There's this idea that, well, hey, look, I did it. You can all do it. Iceland did it. Everybody should do it this way. Or, you know, Denmark did it. And then, then they'll, of course, a lot of it is just distorting what they actually did and what the consequences were. But didn't Musk, isn't Musk doing uh, the Gigafactory partially with geothermal? Although I'm, I'm guessing he's putting it on a grid. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I, I think there's some geothermal already in the region. Uh, he might uh, just buy that by contract, or maybe he produces some of it himself. I, I don't, I don't know as of yet. It's yeah. There's some places have this kind of hydro or geothermal capacity, and it's good to tap into this. But it's the difference between hydro and geothermal and solar and wind is that one is the hydro and geothermal is controllable energy. And some, in some places, it's viable, so it's a good energy source. And sometimes it's just pushed and, and invested in with subsidies to you know, claim, hey, this is another renewable. And, and one other example of that is I've seen energy statistics from India, and they actually um, put their waste incineration into the renewable category because you, know, you generate more and more waste, so you... That's a constant flow of, of waste to burn. Um, and, and that's like, renewable is a wrong category. Like hydroelectric and geothermal don't belong into the same category as solar and wind because they are two diff completely different technologies. And one is controllable and one produces at random. And, and that's not, that's, that's a useless label. All right, now... Last country we can talk about, although I don't know if there's anything new to say, is Spain. So again, Spain, here's a, here's a quote, Spain gets 69% of its electricity generation from zero carbon sources. And notice the switch in terminology from renewable to zero carbon sources. That's clean technica. And then Spain is getting the vast majority of its electricity from carbon-free sources, same idea. Uh, that's Think Progress slash Center for the Reversal of American Progress. Uh, so what what's going on actually? So what, what percentage of energy is coming from these and then what percentage of the electricity? So in terms of total energy, solar produces produce 2.3% um, 
in Spain in 2014, and wind produced 8.9%, so combined of um, 11% almost, or, or almost 12%. So, and in terms of electricity generation, solar provided 5% and wind provided 18%. And the way they got into this carbon-free or zero-carbon um, statistics was that nuclear actually produced over 20% and hydro produced 11.5%. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, that combination of, of non-green and green sources under the label non-carbon-free or zero-carbon you know, creates a lot of electricity produced by, yeah, actually not fossil fuels. That hides the fact that nuclear is counted towards it, as well as large-scale hydro, and both of them are usually opposed by greens. Yeah, so that's one more thing, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, that when you talk about non-carbon sources, uh, you know, nuclear and hydro are, are by far the best, and those are opposed by the green movement. So they're they're used opportunistically to pad these or to pad these statistics or to make them much much more dramatic, because but it's it's a bait and switch because what they want you to focus on, they're basically saying hey unreliables are practical because look non carbon unreliables are non carbon and to non carbon energy produce this percentage and even that's a distortion but uh, but that's <laughs> there's too much equivocation there because non carbon is not the same as the unreliables and it's it's dramatically different so again uh, you get a situation where once again the unreliables are dependent minor forms of energy in a given country that to the extent that they are scaled make things less reliable certainly less independent and much much more uh, expensive so when you hear one of these kinds of claims just know that that's that that's the case, and that people who are who are justifying on the basis of those claims that we use unreliables for fifty plus percent of our energy, you know, I mean, electricity even would be catastrophic. But th that kind of thing, uh, they are they are calling for the scaling of something that works very very badly on a small scale to a catastrophically large scale. All right, Stefan, any, any, I mean, we could also talk about the world. I mean, basically a short story with the world is that energy consumption in the world is 1.2% wind, 0.32% solar. So we're talking about 1.5% still. So that gives you a sense of what's actually going on. Uh, most people who hear discussions of this kind of thing, I think would be shocked at how low that is. But any, any uh, other big points or small points that you want to make about this issue? Yeah, one big point that's, that I want to repeat is that sometimes you see these calculations about energy prices and electricity prices, and then you see something like levelized cost of electricity, where they compare you know, wind power with nuclear and coal and, and natural gas and so on. And most of these calculations are distorted or biased, because what you have to look at in a, in a complex scenario like this, is the total cost of the system. That's, that's the only thing I really can come up with to compare electricity prices. It's, you, you can't just have some wind or some solar production compared to a natural gas power plant or coal power plant production. 
And um, the only way to really have a non-distorted view on this is to compare what happens when you add more of these energy sources. So that's, that's a crucial point. We see a lot of calculations that look scientific from the outset, but they are not really, they are really biased. And it's just another way to push solar and wind as viable replacements, which they are not. And uh, yeah, that's, that's worth keeping in mind. And uh, yeah, we, we see an increase in total cost everywhere where wind and solar are implemented on a large scale. And that's not su no surprise because no matter how cheap the solar cell gets, even if, it's, if it was free, you add the, the cost that the solar integration um, incurs to the total system because you, you need backup for that, almost 100% backup capacity to compensate for the volatility that solar production creates. And also the installation of rooftop solar costs some money and uh, the subsidies to make anyone invest in this also add cost to the system. And so there are many ways to calculate this, but you see the trend when you look at the total cost of the electricity system. Yeah, I, I still find it very helpful to think in terms of just if you bring in a bunch of bums off the street to your company uh, <laughs> and you think, well, this is, you know, they've agreed to work for lower prices than ever. You don't usually think, oh, I'm going to become rich off this scheme because you think, well, this is going to be a complete pain because I have no idea what to expect and they're going to they're going to hog my other resources in all sorts of different and painful ways. And uh, you think about that for a company, if you're managed a company, how much you know bad employee can be a drain or unreliable people can be a drain. And it's very much the same for unreliable sources of electricity or energy more broadly. My my closing thought is just to not dignify this whole set of claims as, as as an interest in or enthusiasm for good energy sources. If if you have a good energy source, the way to have enthusiasm for it is to produce it affordably and sell it on the free market. And even if you're dealing with utilities, which aren't the free market, show them that you can give them reliable electricity at the lowest cost with the fewest drawbacks. So this doesn't why is this all happening through places like, you know, these different nonprofit activist groups? Why is so much of the discussion there or by businesses that are demanding large, large amounts of subsidies, which means other people's money? And it's, it's because these are not actually productive, exciting fields. And thus, there's a question of why, is, why are people so obsessed with promoting them? And the reason is, is they're just a, a rationalization for the destruction of fossil fuels and to some extent nuclear and hydro. But it's, it's really, there's a green movement that thinks we have too much impact on the planet. We have humanized the planet too much. We need to dehumanize it. And thus we need to tear down our whole existing energy infrastructure. But they want to console people who would legitimately be horrified by that prospect. So they'll say, well, no, we, we're not going to have any more unsustainable energy. We'll have sustainable energy like solar and wind. And look, it worked here and here and here. But they're so dishonest with the statistics, which means that they're so 
not honestly concerned with what would actually happen. Because, you know, many of these people talking about these issues, it's not like they run solar panel companies, but it's just they don't really care about energy generation, whether they know that they don't care or not. What they care about is figuring out a way to justify tearing down the actual engines of civilization. Because if you wanted to improve the engines of civilization, you would advocate a free market and be honest about the state of different technologies. But if you just want to tear something down, you just need to make up some fantasies and some lies, and then that'll be enough to get people to think, oh, okay, it'll be fine to tear down uh, our different power plants. It's fine to shut down the nuclear plants. It's, it's fine to shut down the coal plants because, yeah, solar and wind are working really well in in Germany. And, you know, for an hour last year, they got a lot of their electricity, and that should be good enough for us to get enough electricity for some random hour next year in our country. So it's, it's all, it, it, don't dignify it as a legitimate concern with superior energy. That, that whole discussion needs to take place in a free market context. context. So that is my final thought. Stefan, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks again to Stefan Hen for being on the show. All right, I am running up against a deadline right now. So in addition to the fact that we covered a lot during the show and the main interview is pretty long, I'm going to keep this short. Right now, I'd say the only thing I would say I would ask you to do is go to ilovefossilfuels.com. That's ilovefossilfuels.com. And that will take you to a link uh, with a set of steps that anybody can take to impact this election debate. I think this election energy debate is the most consequential of this century. I think it's possible to make a real difference, and I think we need to start now. So that page, uh, and it's it's you'll see it'll take you to a page on the industrialprogress.com website. That'll give you some really good guidance. So check out that page. Let me know what you think. Uh, as always, any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. All right, that'll be it. Uh, and then uh, one more note. In terms of this might not make people happy, I'm not sure what the schedule for Power Hour is going to be over the next couple months. I have a couple of big projects, and I've thought of some different ideas for uh, different types of guests we could have on, particularly guests that I am much more inclined to disagree with. So that that's definitely in the plans, and I think it could be really interesting, uh, but it would take more time to do that, and, and I want to think it through before making any major decisions. But uh, yeah, I can't promise that next week we'll be back, and so we'll, we'll be doing it at least intermittently, but it, it'll be it may well be less like oil and more like wind power. So uh, I apologize for that. If you're a fan of the show, uh, if if you are a fan of the show, I hope you enjoy listening to some of the previous episodes or you can go listen to Moral Case for Fossil Fuels on audio. Uh, but I'll just say the stuff we're working on is is really, really cool and I think will we'll generate a lot of content that you'll enjoy consuming as it comes out. All right, that's it for now. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.